0: Have you ever wondered why anyone drinks Malort? Or if there are actually lobsters in the Chicago River? Then listen to the Curious City podcast, where we answer all your questions about Chicago and the region. WBEZ's Curious City is part of the NPR network and available wherever you find your podcasts. I'm Esther Yunji Kang, and this is Reset, your guide to local news and culture in Chicago and beyond. I'll be taking over the host chair from Sasha today and tomorrow. Have you ever wondered how animals perceive the world we live in? It's a tough question to answer because in many cases, animals experience things that are completely invisible to us. So in his newest book, An Immense World, science writer Ed Yong takes us inside the sensory worlds of animals from bugs that play plants like musical instruments to butterflies that taste with their feet his book shows that there's an endless diversity in how they experience their surroundings we recently sat down with Ed Yong to talk about his new book and some of his favorite quirky wildlife So a lot of people might know you for your Pulitzer Prize winning reporting on COVID-19 for The Atlantic. But before the pandemic upended, well, everything, you did a lot of writing about nature. Uh, What was it like getting back to your quirky animal reporting roots with this new book?
1: Um, uh, It honestly felt a bit like coming home. um, And it was just a uh, a salve for my weary soul. Um, it, it's difficult to uh, continue writing about the ongoing tragedy that mm. is the COVID pandemic. And um, this uh, felt like not a sh- not just a shift in terms of topic, but a shift in terms of tone. Um, the, um, the thing I'm writing about, the ways other animals experience the world, the extraordinary senses that they have... Um, is, is, I think, a, a, a topic of joy and wonder. Um, it's a field that expands our understanding of the world around us, makes us see things that were familiar in um, new and unfamiliar ways. Mm. Um, it has that sort of galaxy brain, um, uh, you know, rushing out to tell your friends some cool facts mm-hmm. um, feeling that has characterized a lot of my work before the pandemic and you know, and was a joy to delve back into.
0: You write a lot about the multiple overlapping crises we're facing, uh, pandemic, climate change, social and economic inequality. You've talked about all those things here on Reset in the past. So why is this book about animals important right now in this moment? Uh, yeah,
1: um, I, I think at its core, um, An Immense World is a book about radical acts of empathy. Mm-hmm. It's about trying to take the perspective of creatures that are incredibly different to us um, in the way they see and hear and feel and smell. Um in many ways, I think a total failure of empathy underlies many of the big problems we face today, including many of the problems that have been uh, exposed by the pandemic, um, the inequalities we face, um, you know, our, bit, our inability to understand the experiences of people who've suffered more than we might have. Um, so I think there's this common thread of trying to cast your mind into the lives of Others who are very different than you, whether it's you know animals that sense the world in a different way, or whether it's people who um, have less fortunate experiences, um, you know that that's something that I'm not you know not suggesting that uh, thinking about how dogs smell or how bats <laughs> echolocate is going to fix our big social problems. <laughs> but I think like empathy is a muscle that we can build um, and and flex. Mm.
0: You write in the book that senses, quote, transform the coursing chaos of the world into experiences and that they allow biology to tame physics. What do you mean by that?
1: So um, the the books organized uh, in chapters that each deal with a kind of stimulus. So whether it's light or sound or um, pressure or heat and how animals sense them. The One thing that unites all of these things is it they're all kind of abstract quantities and there's really no, um, you know, it's not a given that we should be able to detect them at all. And it's kind of wondrous that we do. Like sound is just pressure waves coursing through mm-hmm. the air. Light um, uh, is just electromagnetic ra- radiation smell is just small molecules drifting through the air? Mm. The fact that we have the this hardware that um, can detect all of these um, qualities in the world around us and then you know and then the ability to actually turn them into um, the the majesty of a sunset or the smell of baking bread or all the other you know great subjective experiences that we have. That's kind of extraordinary in its own right. Mm. Um, so, you know, the fact that we can sense the world at all is just baseline, extremely cool. And the fact that what we sense, even though it feels all encompassing to us, it feels like all there is to know. Um, the fact that it is actually only a thin sliver of all there is to know mm. and that other animals um, perceive different parts of the fullness of reality is, I think, even more extraordinary So.
0: Yeah. I mean, the intro grabbed me right away. You start the book by asking us to imagine being in a gym with wild animals um, and that there are all these things that they can and cannot perceive about one another. Can you walk us through that awesome example? (laughs)
1: Right, so um, it talks about uh, imagining a large room, uh, probably a school gym, in which there's like an elephant, a a robin, a bumblebee, a spider, a bat, a rattlesnake, (laughs) a dog, a mouse. So a lot of these animals uh, are in the same space, uh, and a human. Um, And their experiences of that space that they physically share are going to be radically different. The snake, for example, will, will detect the uh, body heat of the mouse running through um, the room. The mouse can hear ultrasonic high-pitched frequencies that the bat can hear, but the elephant can't. The elephant can hear low-pitched infrasound that all the other creatures can't sense. The robin can detect the magnetic field of the earth and use that field to guide its migration. Um, So that intro, that hypothetical example is sort of doing double duty. First, Mm. it's saying all of these animals can be in the same space and have an utterly different experience. Mm. And it's my, my sort of vivid way of trying to get people to understand that. But it also is an act of imagination. And that is probably the most important thing that I'm going to ask readers to repeatedly do in the book. Like, I can tell you the science behind, say, a rattlesnake's infrared sense or a bat's echolocation. But to actually understand what it perceives, to think about its subjective experience, is, is a little unknowable and requires these imaginative leaps. And again, you know, like, much like empathy, that's a muscle that we can build and that I'm going to ask readers to build over the course of the book.
0: Hmm, that's interesting. Um, you talk a lot in the book about umwelt. What is <laughs> an Umwelt.
1: So an umwelt uh, is a a sensory bubble. It is the thin sliver of um, all the information out there in the world that we can perceive. You know, it's the unique combination of sights and smells uh, and uh, textures and sounds that we can perceive, but that another animal might not be able to. So, for example, the magnetic field that the robin can sense is part of its umwelt, but not part of mine, um, uh, the color red is part of my umbelt but not part mm. of a bumblebees for example um and so this concept like anchors the entire book a, and i love it because it's it's quite humbling for all of our like grandstanding as, as a as this you know incredible species we humans are are only still grasping a tiny fraction mm. of of the fullness of reality. Yeah,
0: so is the takeaway that we are just trapped by our own limited senses, or is there a more positive way to, to look at it?
1: Yeah, um, so in, in some ways, yeah, like, yes, we, we <laughs> are trapped. in the, the umwelt concept can feel constrictive, like limiting in that way. But, but I actually think it's expansive because... We do have this ability as a species to think about the umbelts of other creatures. And and I don't think that's an ability that's very common. You know, I don't don't think a rattlesnake is sitting there thinking, what does a robin sense or even is aware that the robin senses different things. We do. Um, the zoologist Jakob von who who pioneered the umwel concept, built it as a sort of travelogue. You know mm-hmm. that you could go on journeys through the sensory worlds of other animals just by thinking about them and understanding them. And I think there's something quite magical and very profoundly human about about doing that. You know, to to do this, to to go on these journeys, um, expands our own minds, lets us see like boring things in the world in in new and wondrous ways. It feels like a gift to me and one that we really ought to cherish.
0: So as a human with the senses that you have, how did you approach writing your way into all these other animals' (laughs) sensory worlds without portraying them? I know you crawled and and did like a smell test like a dog. um, But how did you, you do that without portraying them through the bias of your own senses? Yeah,
1: so um, I I did a lot of travel for this um, book. I went to three different continents. So I met a lot of scientists who work with a lot of interesting animals, you know, went traipsing around California looking for rattlesnakes and got punched by a mantis shrimp <laughs> in Australia. Um, so it is hard, right? You, it's mm. very hard to just sit there and watch an animal and actually think, like, what what is its umwelt. Um But fortunately, a lot of people over decades and centuries have actually tried to address this question. They've done interesting studies and experiments. And those people have also um, thought a lot about what other animals might experience. So part of the technique of the book was trying to tell the stories of the researchers who work in the space. You know, I'm trying to get... Um, people who study electric fish to speculate about what it might be like to sense through the, the world through the electric fields that you yourself might generate. Um, and I found that the, the people who do work in this area really have thought hard about the, the sort of philosophical implications of their science. Uh, and I think that's, that's part of the richness um, of, of this topic and that I hope to bring out in the book.
0: Ed, I understand you traveled around the world to report this book before the pandemic and you met a lot of wild animals. do you have any favorites <laughs> um,
1: yes uh, very much so uh, so i I went to um a lab in uh, Idaho that studies um the echolocation of bats um you know and every year they they capture a few wild bats um, you know house them in snug conditions in the lab before releasing them, and then they put the bats out into this flight room where they get to sort of monitor what they're doing and how they're using their sonar and you know I remember watching this bat called Zipper um just uh completely tearing around this pitch black space. Um, You know, swooping in and out uh, after moths that had also been released in this flight room, while the scientists who I was watching this with outside were just cheering like excited sports fans. Um, Mm. And it it was such a palpable moment for me because it, it revealed like both how adept the animal is um, in this con- in this uh, environment, where a human simply wouldn't be able to function, and also just the sheer joy and exuberance um, in the scientists who are studying the mm-hmm. way this animal behaves.
0: So the chapters of this book uh, walk us through animal senses one by one, uh, like smells, tastes, color, heat, sound, and electric fields, to name just a few. But you also explain how senses can overlap. Like how ant neurons can sense smell and touch at the same time, or how people can experience synesthesia, can you explain that for us?
1: yeah, I think we're used to thinking of the senses as separate buckets right like they, with humans we have the the classic uh, aristotelian five senses um, but they don't they aren 't actually that discreet and, and especially not in other animals, um so you know an, an ant might uh, might both taste and touch with its antennae. It might be able to, um, you know, feel a flavour or or, um, be able to taste uh, a shape. Um, And, you know, that that extends to um, a lot of other animals, too. Um, You know, I talk about uh, uh, in that chapter about um, the bill of the duck-billed platypus um, has Um, mechanosensors that detect um, touch and pressure and also electric sensors that Mm. detect electric fields. And there are some people who think that maybe all of these things fuse into a single sense of electro touch Um, humans have something a little bit similar to that we have uh, a lot of people have synesthesia where um, the senses blur into each other Mm. so people might associate like um uh, a a number uh, or a a sort of abstract concept with um, a smell or a color Um, but i think those kinds of perceptual blurring are actually quite commonplace um for a lot of other animals
0: So what animal sensory mysteries are are still unsolved?
1: I think there are lots. Um, So I've got a huge, I've got a whole chapter in the book about Vibration sensors so being able to detect um, the um, the waves that move along the solid surfaces that we touch and on which we stand. Um, a lot of animals do this, but it's sort of it's a little neglected. You know, I talk in the book about um, how elephants might be able to use this kind of seismic sense to communicate over long distances. How um, insects called leafhoppers are sending um, vibrational songs through the plants around us all the time without us being aware. of. Of it. Um, And then there are senses where there are still huge mysteries. With vision, a a sense that most of us are familiar with, I know what's responsible for vision. I have two eyes. I know the cells in those eyes that detect light. But I don't know what the sense organs or what the receptors are for magnetoreception, the Mm. ability that birds and turtles and other animals use to detect Earth's magnetic field. That's a very counterintuitive sense. People have tried to puzzle over what's the organ that senses magnetic fields for a a long time. And there's been multiple dead ends, uh, multiple false leads. Um, The sense of the world of animal senses has been studied for decades, centuries, maybe even millennia. But there is still so much to discover. And one of the scientists I talked to published a paper just a few years ago uh, that basically that was titled, we, we Really Don't Know Anything, Do We?
0: <laughs> yeah, that part made me laugh out loud. Um, Ed, this book is a joy to read. But of course, when it comes to the natural world, we, we can't ignore the devastating effects we've had on ecosystems and wildlife. Um, your last chapter touches on some of that, like how we've boosted noise levels in our oceans to to levels OSHA wouldn't approve of uh, to the detriment of marine life. How do the problems of light and noise pollution, for example, um, compare to other types of pollution we've maybe heard more about?
1: Yeah, uh, I think they are substantial uh, and important. Um, we have flooded the world with um, sensory pollution, that stimuli like light, noise and other things that um, drown out the um, cues that animals need, the alarm calls and mating um, sounds uh, that they rely upon. It, we Those, those um, stimuli that we put into the world distract animals from things they need to pay attention to, might push them out of areas uh, that... Um, that would otherwise be ideal for them because it's too bright or too noisy. Um, through light and noise pollution, we um, waylay migrating birds from their paths, often with fatal results. Um, you know, we have uh, collapsed the amount of space over which whales and other oceanic animals can hear because we fill that space with the din of noisy ships. You know, these problems are significant, and I think we ignore them in a sort of paradoxical way light and sound should be things that are very obvious to us but we neglect their impact because we don't think of them as pollutants you know light for example is something we want more of but if we flood it into the world at times where it doesn't belong we cause problems for the for the animals around us in ways that are you know i think just as dramatic as say plastic pollution or you know chemicals billowing out of a smokestack but um, but are less obvious to us because we just don't think of them as negative things.
0: So really quickly, just what can we do?
1: Um... A lot of the things we can do are actually pretty simple. So we can put up sound-absorbing structures around roads. We can force ships to move at slower speeds, which is also an economic boon. Um, We can turn off lights at night um, in public buildings, in our own homes. Um, You know, we can do small individual actions, but also big policy changes to reduce light and noise. And I think we should do that. Like unlike things like say pesticides or plastics, um, uh, you know, radioactive wastes. Unlike these things which are going to last in the environment for a long time, even if we stop all production tomorrow, light and noise. If we just turn them off they disappear Mm -hmm. and immediately. This is a rare example of an ecological gimme, like a a problem that is huge in in scope, but that can be quickly addressed Mm -hmm. if we have the political will to do so and if we recognize that this genuinely is a problem.
0: That's award-winning science reporter Ed Yong. You can pick up An Immense World today wherever you buy books. Ed, thanks again. That's all for today's Reset. If you liked what you heard, be sure to give us a rating and tell your friends. We drop an episode every weekday afternoon and sometimes on Saturdays, too. I'm Esther Yunji Kang. Thanks for listening. We'll meet again tomorrow.